we continue our series we're calling God's Big Picture. Um, and again, disclaimer, uh, I am basing this series on this book by Vaughn Roberts called God's Big Picture. It's my favorite book that gives a very simple, quick overview of the entire Bible and how it all fits together. Um, so I commend it to you. I, we may still have a few copies back there if you want to pick one up for $10. Um, you may do that. Before we jump into Genesis 3, and by the way, uh, just hearing Genesis 3 again, there is no way that we're going to unpack all that can be unpacked in this chapter, okay? We are flying at 30,000 feet. Maybe we're actually in uh, the space shuttle going around Earth, and we're even higher than that. Uh, this is a quick overview of the major theme uh, that we're following, and that is the kingdom of God. So before we jump into Genesis 3, I want to remind you again how we're looking at the entire um, story of Jesus, um, the story of Jesus in 3D. We're saying that, first of all, the Bible presents itself as a drama. And as I've said, it it's, can be a four-act play. Creation, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, we saw that last week. This week, we're in Act 2, the fall, Genesis 3 through chapter 11. Then next week, we'll start with the longest act, it seems, uh, Act 3, redemption, beginning in Genesis 12, and you could say it goes all the way through the, the Gospels. And then Act 4 is restoration, and you could say that it begins with Acts after the resurrection of Christ and uh, goes all the way through Revelation and keeps going and keeps going. Um, so that's the story. Um, but we have also said that the Bible is, is not just a drama. It also is a drama that contains uh, the, the playwright's notes in it. Um, so the Bible also has doctrine in it, teaching that tells us, uh, that helps us to learn the story of Jesus. And we said that it answers questions like, who is God? What is he up to? Who are we? What's gone, what's gone wrong? How did God remedy, remedy the problem? And what is the Spirit doing now? So when you look at God's book and you ask these questions, you draw out teaching. And I said, for example, that the letters of the apostles in the New Testament are, are full of doctrine, teaching us, how to learn about the, the story of Jesus. But the Bible also contains uh, something that is hard to find with other stories, and that is uh, directions on how to live in the story of Jesus. And uh, all of the, the commands and imperatives uh, in the Bible tell us how we can live in this story. They, they help answer the question, how do we join the Spirit in what he's doing, and we have said that um, all of those things can be summed up um, in three responses that we have to what God says in his word. Uh, we are to repent and to believe the gospel and to obey, to follow Jesus. Um, and Jesus summed the obedience part up by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor 
as yourself. So, that's, that's kind of how we're looking at the Bible as a whole. And then we're tracing the theme of the kingdom of God uh, through the Bible this fall. And Von Roberts defines the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and enjoying his blessing. So that's where we're tracking each week. Last week, we saw that it, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 kind of set that pattern for us. And they show us that Adam and Eve are God's people in God's place, the Garden of Eden. And under the rule of his word, they enjoy the blessing of being God's community on God's mission. So, let me pray for us, and we will jump into the perished kingdom chapter of the story. Father, come and be with us now as we... uh, Seek to to understand the story and and seek to understand not just uh, with our heads the story, but but to love with our hearts the Jesus that the story shows us. Uh, That's what we want. We want to love Jesus, to learn Jesus, and to live in Jesus. And so do that now, even as we dive into uh, this part of your story. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So how's everybody doing after our terrific Tennessee game yesterday? Mm, I can see that you're doing well. Um, When I lived in Knoxville, um, you could sense on a day, after a day like yesterday, you could sense a palpable despair in the city. It just kind of hung over like a cloud. And I've seen some of those clouds over your heads today, a few of you. Um, There was one over mine last night, so I just went to bed. Um, It's kind of a sad thing. Why, here's my question, why do we care so much? Let me tell you real quickly about my first uh, Tennessee home game that I got to go to. A friend of mine who had been to several uh, took me as his, um, you know, his disciple to go check out uh, what it's like to go to a UT home game. So we had to park two miles away, and as we walked, the, the streets were just flooded with orange. As we got to that famous football fortress, Neyland Stadium, um, we just saw crowds of orange flowing into the stadium. It was like somebody had pulled out a big stopper in a drain in the middle of the field, and all these people were just rushing in. So we got sucked in along with them, and when we finally came up for air in our seats, um, I just looked out and saw the vast sea of orange in what is one of the largest uh, open-air stadiums in the country. Uh, Of course, all the balls would say it is the largest, but anyway. Um, So there we were, and then I started to experience the sights and sounds and smells of football time in Tennessee. Um, Unbelievable, and then there were hundreds of choruses of Rocky Top that kind of crescendoed into this loud roar as the players came bolting out of the locker room, slapped that sign that says, I will give my all for Tennessee today, and rushed into the power tee. It was glorious. And there's a sense in which there is a, there is a glory there, the splendor of the Tennessee spirit, you know. Um, 
that game thankfully turned out different than yesterday's, um, even though it seemed like we were on the verge of, the, of defeat and I was on the edge of my seat, we somehow pulled off a victory. And, and I found myself high-fiving and hugging people I don't know, um, pumping my fists in the air as if I had caught the winning touchdown. Um, we were all one victorious vol nation that day. I tell you that story again because there, there's a, a sense of glory in all that. Why, why, do, we, why do we love um, college football that way? My, my theory is that, as we talked about last week, is, is that it's because we were designed to be a part of a community on a mission. Um, and though I'm not on the field with the guys, there's something about college football that makes you feel like you're somehow, at least vicariously, part of that community on a mission. Um, now, there's nothing inherently wrong with enjoying Tennessee football. But, be warned, it can easily turn into idolatry. Idolatry, idolatry, come on. I'm done. Um, No, we easily turn whatever community on mission that we're attached to into an idol. Um, We get captivated and galvanized by by collective activities, um, whether it's sports, whether it's the arts, whether it's our political party and cause, whether it's crafting or our business venture, um, uh, online communities, our social causes, any, any kind of community that's got a mission. It's very easy for us to get caught up in it and begin to define ourselves by it. Now, now hear me say this. The moment that we define ourselves more by any community other than the community on mission for which God made us, we've traded God's kingdom for our own. Now, hear what I'm saying. Define yourself more by those communities on mission than you do by God's community on God's mission. I'm not saying we don't enjoy those others, but when they become what we depend on to save us from boredom, in a purpose, purposeless life, even if they're good things, we have traded God's kingdom for our own. And this, I think, is what happened, is, is what we see in um, the people in Genesis 11. I'm going to start there and then back up um, a little bit. Genesis 11. Look what... Uh, Look what the Bible says in Genesis 11:4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You, you know the story of the Tower of Babel, and uh, these folks have collectively pulled together their talents and their resources, and they're going to build this ziggurat to heaven. Um, 
but this is their purpose. Look at, look at what their purpose is. Uh, they're going to make a name for themselves. Last week I talked about our designed uh, desire to do something special with our lives, to make an impact. There it is. They wanted to make a name for themselves. Just like I said last week, I wanted to make a name for myself by being the next Elvis. Um, but they also had another purpose. They did not want to be dispersed or scattered over the face of the whole earth. They wanted a community. They wanted to be together. What's wrong with that, you say? But again, that's the other thing I said last week we were designed for. We were designed to be someone special to others. So here, these folks are building this city and this tower so that they could be someone special and do something special. Uh, they were looking to be a community on mission. The problem with their approach is that it's the parts that are in green there. Let us build ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. They were seeking to build a community and pursue a mission apart from God. And so uh, that can be what we do with the little communities and missions that we're a part of um, every day, whether it's Tennessee football or, or something else. For example, we, though we are the church, the church is the ultimate community on mission. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying his blessing, together as God's community on a God-centered mission. That's what we're supposed to be as the body of Christ. But it's very subtle and easy sometimes to not depend on God to be the community and mission that he calls us to be, but to shift and say, no, I want Mountain Fellowship to be the kind of community and have the kind of mission that, that I want us to have. It's, it's easy to shift that. I, I want to just poke on that just for a minute. And then we're going to go back and see, how did, how did these people get to this place? How do we get to this place? Even here at Mountain Fellowship, we could easily make our community an idol. Like the people at the Tower of Babel, we could fall into the trap of um, idolizing our fellowship to the point of not wanting to be scattered, not wanting new folks to come in because they might change who we are, not being willing to reach out to people, the people in our neighborhoods or on this mountain or, or people who are just different than us, whether racially, economically, educationally, theologically, politically. It would be really easy for us to be our own little holy huddle and not be bothered by other groups. We could uh, idolize our community, our fellowship, uh, by having an idealized dream of what Mountain Fellowship should, could, or ought to be. Um, I've been guilty of doing this in the churches that I've served, and it is my tendency, so you can watch out for me and pray for me, that I have such an idealistic dream that I think is biblical of what the church ought to be, uh, what this church ought to be. 
that I get so frustrated that we're not there and I look beyond the actual people to the dream. And I forget that God has not only called me to keep my eyes on the vision He has for His church, He has for His church, but also to keep my heart and eyes and mind on the people that He has in the church. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his famous book, Life Together, said this, and years ago I found this quote and it it convicted me, and it still slays me. He said, those who love their dream, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. We love the dream of what we hope the community could be, should be, more than the community itself, the people God has put in front of us. Um, And certainly, certainly, we want to aim for the dream. But in the meantime, we need to love Mountain Fellowship as she is, and then not leave her as she is but pursue God's dream for her. That's my tendency. That's how I can subtly turn God's community or my version of it into an idol. We can also uh, make our mission an idol. You know, what is it that we're supposed to do as a church? Um, And I was convicted uh, by this. Uh, J.I. Packer said, Being special is the Achilles heel of many churches today. He said they want to stand out and be noticed. Unless I'm asking myself, I'm asking our elders, I'm asking those of you who have yourselves invested in this congregation. Is it possible? And honestly, I'm not saying that I see this anywhere. I'm just asking the question. Do we want to be special? Do we want to, be sta- do we want to stand out and be noticed? Do we want to make a name for ourselves as Mountain Fellowship? Or do we want to be what God wants Mountain Fellowship to be and let his name be honored, regardless of what reputation we have? Uh, that pursuing a name for ourselves as a congregation could lead us into all kinds of crazy things. We want to be big. Because, you know, the bigger we are, the better impact we have. Yeah, but the bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of asking us to think about this. Is our goal to make a name for ourselves? Or is our goal to be the church God has called Mountain Fellowship to be? whether that makes us big and known or not. Who cares? Let's be who God has called us to be. Okay. Ah, enough meddling, let me preach. Um, how do we get, how, how did they get to the, power, uh, the Tower of Babel situation? How do we get there? Um, let's, let's back up real quick in Genesis 3. This is going to be quick, so hang on. Fasten your seatbelts. 
you'll remember um, that uh, last week we talked about God has created us for a you-first life. He created us to look at God and people and all that God has made and say, no, you first. We were created to use ourselves to serve and love God, to serve and love people, and to serve and love all God has made. Um, that's the first part of the story, but then, as we see in Genesis 3, there's a villain in this story. We have an enemy. And Satan figured if, if he couldn't dethrone or destroy God, then he'd go after those who reflect the image of God. If he can't have God's glory, then he'll deceive and destroy those who reflect God's glory. And so uh, he had a few tactics, and there's so much we could look at again in Genesis 3, but I want to focus on on this part. Uh, Vaughn Roberts was very helpful with this as well. Listen to how the enemy worked in his deception. First of all, he distorted God's word. He said, Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree? But that's not what God said. Genesis 2.16, we see that God said, you may eat of every tree except that one. And the devil comes along, the serpent comes along and says, did he say you can't eat of any tree? Of course, Eve didn't quite fall for that one. But his desire there is to say, God's word isn't clear. You can't trust God's word. It's not clear. And then he questions God's word. Did God say? Did God really say? Did he really speak this? And then later he said, you're not going to die. You shall not surely die. He just blatantly goes beyond questioning it to outright denying God's word. And so there, the enemy is trying to say, God's word isn't true. It's not only not clear, it's it's just not true. And then finally, he both distorts and questions God's motives. He told Eve, God knows that when you eat this tree, you'll be like like God. He's, He's questioning the motive that God has for holding this one tree back and telling them not to eat from it. And again, God's motives... Uh, God said you can eat of every tree. He gave them so much. The provision was much greater than the prohibition. Um, he's, he's causing Adam and Eve, as Adam listens in, to, to doubt God's good heart. And I want to ask you, do you see him using the same tactics with you? See, his goal is to undermine God's word. Because remember, God rules by his word. He tells us who we are. He tells us whose we are. He tells us what to do with who we are because of whose we are. He he rules when we submit to his word. And so the devil's tactic is to attack the clarity and the truth and the fairness of God's word. Is he doing that to you? It's a battle over who will rule you, isn't it? It's a battle over your worship and your work. 
It's a battle over whose word you will submit to. And if you think about it, we can see that much of what we see going on in our culture and in our own hearts is this battle. It's about whose word will you listen to and submit to. And so a lot of the, uh, even the cultural battles that we're seeing today um, are subtle, if not very clear, attacks on the authority of God and his word. The tactic then is the tactic today. And here's just one side note before we keep going. Where was Adam? I used to think, I told the men in the men's Bible study yesterday, I used to think that while Eve was talking with the serpent, uh, Adam was at home on the couch watching the ball game, and then Eve shows up with a bowl of fruit and says, here, honey, here's a snack, and he just innocently takes some and eats it. Of course, you would figure a man would think that, right? Um, But the Bible says she gave some of the fruit to Adam who was with her. He was standing there listening, maybe not, maybe hearing but not listening to the conversation, which men can do. But he was there. And he did not fulfill the mandate God had given him to cultivate and guard the garden. Part of guarding the garden as the priest of God's temple, the garden, is he was to keep it holy. He was to keep evil out. And so rather than speaking to the snake and saying, you better slither yourself out of here, this is what God says. This is what God's word is. It's clear, it's true, and it's fair. Be gone, Satan, which is what Jesus told the devil in the wilderness. Um, And he didn't speak to his bride, his partner, his companion, his friend, and say, wait, 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 no, don't listen to that. God's word can be trusted. God loves us. Look at all that he's given us. Let's get out of here. Instead of speaking, he was silent. And the result of their rebellion is the ruin of the three relationships we were made for. And so now, rather than use ourselves to love and serve God, uh, we use God and people and all that God has made to serve ourselves. This is the result. Every relationship was broken. And Genesis 3 describes uh, the fallout of those broken relationships. Um, Rather than being a God-centered community on God's mission to magnify and multiply, multiply God's glory throughout all creation forever, Humankind became a man-centered community on man's mission to magnify and multiply man's glory throughout all creation forever. If you look on the inside of your bulletin uh, at the bottom of the sermon notes, I've put a quote from uh, 
Dr. Kelly Capick, who teaches at uh, Covenant College, he sums this up well. He says, having eaten from the tree of knowing good and evil, humanity lost its innocence before God, before one another, and before the rest of creation. The garden was lost, along with our place of peace within it. We all now participate in this most basic sin, whether we want to admit it or not. As John Schneider says, we all now have this desire somewhere within ourselves to be ridiculously tiny versions of God, answerable to none but ourselves. And so, from Adam and Eve, we have inherited a me-first heart, a me-first life where all the arrows point to us. And this, so from Genesis 3 to 4 to 5, 6 through 9, and 11, uh, 10 and 11, um, this me-first heart spreads like a virus. So quickly, look at how this happened. It began in individuals, this me-first heart did. Then it spread to relationships. Um, Genesis chapters 4 through 9, you go right into Cain and Abel. Um, Cain murdering Abel. You go into... Uh, families are destroyed. It, it gets so bad that God uh, says that every intent of their hearts was only toward evil. Uh, we Presbyterians like to use the phrase total depravity, and that doesn't mean that you're as depraved and sinful as you could be. It just means that in your totality, you have been corrupted by the me-first heart. You're totally depraved. And we are, and our relationships are as well. And then finally, in Genesis 10 and 11, we see that the nations, cities, societies are affected by the me-first heart, which actually becomes an us-first heart. And that's where we have the people at the Tower of Babel. And that's where we find ourselves. So that's God's people have now been banished from God's place. And the place, um, God's place is groaning, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Uh, it was subjected to futility, but uh, it now groans for freedom from those bonds one day. Um, again, Dr. Capic says this, and this is about creation, God's place, and how sin corrupted it. When the Bible speaks about sin's intrusion into this world, it describes sin's effects on the entire cosmos. Nothing in creation has gone untouched by the fall. Because of humanity's organic and representative relationship to the rest of creation, our plunge into sin has affected the entire world. From the cancer cells that infest our bodies to the giant tsunamis that strike unsuspecting coastal villages, the entire Physical creation is now said to groan under this bondage to decay. And friends, uh, because of how sin has corrupted individuals and relationships and structures and all creation, this is why, uh, this is why we hear an outcry, even in our country, of sin in systems, sin in structures. Um, who cares what your political viewpoint is? The Bible says every societal structure is corrupted 
by the me first heart or the us first heart. That's what the Bible says. You can assume that sin is at play in all of these things. Our home, our place is corrupted and so are we who live in it. And so that leaves us here. The perished kingdom, God's people, no one. God's place, they've been banished from it. They have been disobedient to God's rule by his word and now no longer enjoy his blessing but are under his curse. So let me close with this. The story could have ended there. The story could have ended with no one being God's people, uh, being banished from God's place, living in disobedience to God and therefore under God's curse. But because of God's rich mercy and amazing grace, he continued to pursue rebels like you and me. He went into the garden and said, Adam, where are you? That wasn't for God's information. (laughs) He was pursuing his sinful son. And so there are a couple of glimmers of hope in this very dark part of the story. In Genesis 3, verse 15, we read God saying to the serpent, I will put enmity, that's war basically, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Then he says this, he, the woman's offspring, now it's a a singular person, he will bruise your head but not without you bruising his heel. There's a glimmer of hope that one day there would be coming a serpent crusher. And of course, on this side of the cross, we know it's Jesus. And in verse 21 of chapter 3, it says, And the Lord God, he didn't have to do this. Remember, they were naked and ashamed because they were exposed in their sin and rebellion against God. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What kindness. What grace. And what did it take for him to make those clothes? It took the shedding of blood. And so we know on this side of the cross, that's a picture. There was the promise of a serpent crusher. Now there's a picture of the sacrifice that covers. The glimmer of hope in Genesis 6 through 9 is the ark. The ark. It's a picture of how God saves people from judgment by grace through faith. Uh, Out of His grace, God offered salvation, a way of escape from His judgment. And by faith, by trusting God's provision for salvation, there were those who came onto the ark who put their entire lives into God's provision of salvation and were rescued from the judgment of God. Jesus is your ark. But there's not only a picture of how God saves His people in the ark, there's a promise in the rainbow that God will preserve a place for God's people so that they can be with God and He can dwell with them forever. So He's not done yet at this part of the story. And then finally, 
in Genesis chapter 9, the mandate is still there. When they got off the boat, God said to Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God still wants to be in community with and on mission with his people. And next week, we'll begin to see how that plan unfolds to rescue rebels. In the meantime, I'm asking you this morning, will you place your faith? Are you placing your faith, your life, in God's promised provision for safety and rescue? In order to do that, you have to admit that you deserve judgment and that you need to be saved. Jesus Christ, as he's offered to you in what this table pictures, is the promised provision for our salvation. He is the serpent crusher. He is the sacrifice that covers. He is the ark that saves from judgment we deserve. He is the last Adam who took on the curse given to the first Adam. And so as we come to this table, I invite you, whether it's the first time you've ever trusted Jesus to be the last Adam, um, to be your provision of salvation from the judgment of God, or whether it's the millionth time you've done it, that's what this table is about. That's what Jesus offers to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that even in the darkest part of the story, you planted a few glimmers of hope, a a picture and a promise of a salvation and a Savior to come to solve our biggest problem and to meet our greatest need. Oh, thank you, God, that you did that. And thank you for this uh, bread and this cup, which remind us that Jesus is the lamb who was slain to take away the sin of the world so that we might have fellowship with you again. And so we ask now that you would take this bread and this cup, set them aside from their normal everyday use and let them be for us a sign and a seal of your promise that you pursue sinners, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom we are the worst. And yet he loved us. And you love us. Thank you for that. We ask that you would fill us now with your spirit as we come and feed on Jesus by faith. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.